Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the premiere of the Metaverse Sportscast, where we help you level up your mental game. My name is Nick. I'm going to be your host for the next 30 or 40 minutes or so. Appreciate you folks joining me. This has been a project a long time in the making for me. I have been, uh, I've spent the last uh, several months uh, figuring out how to organize my thoughts and present this material to you. And, and honestly, like, there's, just, there's just a lot of it. Uh, I have been uh, very, very blessed uh, to experience sports in many different ways over the last 20 years, and I have encountered many, many people who have uh, blessed me with a tremendous amount of knowledge and things that I'm very interested in and things that I find very fascinating and things that have helped me improve both in sports and in my personal life. Uh, I have had the opportunity to participate in three different sports, uh, disc golf, fencing, and pool, and I have done so in many different roles. Uh, there are basically five ways you can participate in sports. Uh, you, you can be a fan, which is the most common. You can be a competitor, second most common. Uh, and those are the two that we tend to think of the most. Uh, we also think about coaches pretty regularly. That's definitely the third role. Uh, and we do hear a lot uh, about administrators. Uh, and I talk about administrators, I'm talking about you know general managers. Uh, I run an APA franchise for a, for a living. Uh, the APA is the biggest pool league in the world. And uh, I've run some disc golf clubs. I've run some fencing clubs. And, uh, you know, being a manager of a club, that's definitely a thing. And there's a lot of work that goes into doing that. And there's a lot of mental stress that goes into doing that for sure. Uh, and you can also be an official in sports. You can be a referee. You can be an umpire. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have been a national class uh, USFA referee uh, for, the, for the fencing community. I've refereed at the national level. Uh, I've also refereed at the world championships for the APA. Uh, I have been a PDGA tournament director. And I can assure you that when you go out there as a referee, you're going out there with the same mindset as you go out there as a competitor. You are being judged, you are being looked at, you are being rated, uh, you are being evaluated. And your performance has a profound effect on the other people who are participating in sports. As a referee, if you do well, you have a very positive impact. If you don't do well, that can have a very negative impact on coaches, competitors, fans. That can change a lot of things. So folks don't really realize just how much pressure there is with being an administrator and with being a referee, and they don't uh, realize that a lot of the concepts that we use to make ourselves better as competitors, referees and coaches and administrators, they also use those same techniques. And having been a part of sports in all five of those capacities and having done so at a high level, I have a fairly unique view of sports uh, that I don't think a lot of people have. And it has introduced me to so many people in so many different aspects of sports. And I would really like to share some of that information with you. Uh, and I want to focus more on the metaphysical side of things as opposed to the physical side of things. When we talk about the physical elements of sports, we talk about you know, mechanics, how we build a fencer, how we build a pool player, how we execute on the disc golf course. And metaphysics is more conceptually based. Uh, you know, like physically, I can pick this up, I can have a drink of water, I can manipulate this tangibly. But you can't really do that with things like ethics or logic or uh, psychology. Uh, music is another one. Uh, 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 people who deal with those sorts of things are, are more versed in metaphysics. Uh, I studied religion and philosophy in college as an undergrad, so I'm very familiar with metaphysics, and there's a lot of metaphysics in sports, and we don't necessarily realize that it is metaphysics, and uh, the, for me, there are five subsets of metaphysics in sports, 
And they're all very closely related to each other. They interact with each other in very important ways. They build off of each other. And it's more of a, think of it, don't think of this as a spectrum. Think of this more circular. Uh, and the first of those categories is the mental game which is rooted very deeply in sports psychology. And when I talk about the mental game, I'm talking about the internal mental game, uh, not necessarily anything that's happening externally. How do we deal with things internally? How do we deal with things like anger, frustration, expectation, uh, failure, success, preparation, lack thereof, uh, things like that? How do we win that battle with ourselves so that we can find a path to success? And the mental game for me is very, very closely related to the metagame which is my second subcategory. The metagame is the strategy of sports. Uh, we're all typically familiar with the metagame. I don't think that's a concept that's going to be new for a lot of a lot of my listeners. And usually there's a usually it's a coach or a team leader or a team captain or a field general of some sort who's handling the metagame, but not always. Sometimes in individual sports and all three sports that I've played are mostly individual. There are team components, but it's all based on individual performance and it's usually based on my performance and it's not related to any of my teammates performance. Uh, it's how well I perform on the table or on the disc golf course. And what I'm doing that I have to be the strategist. I have to do the metagame. Uh, when you're playing a disc golf tournament, you don't always have access to a coach. You're in the middle of a fencing bout. That's happening in real time. You are the one hopping and bopping. You are the one that's got to do the strategy. Uh, but coaches are definitely a part of that too, which is my third set, coaching philosophy. And I think that applies a lot to not just coaches, but those field generals, those quarterbacks, those on-the-field coaches, those team leaders. Uh, coaching philosophy applies to them as well. And I'm not talking about just a coach's ability to coach. I'm talking about a student's ability to be coached. Uh, sometimes it's not the coach's fault that the student is not getting things. You know, We as students, we have to be receptive to what our coaches are, are teaching us and know how to communicate what we're feeling or what we're experiencing or what we need to, to succeed. And that can be very uncomfortable for athletes sometimes, especially if you're dealing with a, a competent or, or a more dominant personality as a coach. That can sometimes be challenging. Uh, and, um, and all of that relates very closely to the team dynamic, uh, the way the strategy is playing out, the way the coach is working things, the way everybody's working with their, their mental headspace, all has an effect on the community or the team dynamic. And I specifically say community and team dynamics uh, because it exists in individual sports too. Uh, when, I, when I used to go to a fencing tournaments, um, they're individual events, no team, just me fencing the other guy. But I always felt like I was surrounded by my teammates because the people that I trained with at the Sal, um, uh, at the various places I fenced, those people were a part of my team. We had a community, we built together, we trained together, that's what we do. And even though it's an individual sport, the community still has a really profound impact on that. And it's a really big part of metaphysics and finding success in sports, uh, as is the mental health element of sports. Uh, and I know that sounds maybe a little weird to be as the fifth category, but if you stop and think about it, why do we participate in sports? Like, what's the purpose? We're there to get something out of it, right? And I'd say 99 times out of 100, someone is at a sporting event because they have fun, because they enjoy it. Uh, whether they're there as a competitor, it's a lot of fun to compete. Honestly, it's not the most fun I can have when I'm out at sports. I mean, I do have fun when I compete, but I have a lot more fun coaching <laughs> than I do competing, or I have a lot more fun administrating than I do, uh, than I do teaching, uh, than I, or than I do coaching, and that I do competing. So it's important to understand that 
when you're at a sporting event, and it doesn't matter what capacity you're there in, you're there for a positive mental health experience. And it's important to recognize that your actions have an effect on the people around you. Your choices at pool league or your choices at disc golf league or at a, at a tournament or wherever you are can have a positive or negative effect on the mental health of the people around you. And sports in and of itself can be incredibly positive for mental health, or it can be incredibly negative. Um, it has definitely been both in my life. Uh, I am someone who struggles with mental health, and I am generally very, very open about my mental health. It is something that has served me very, very well for the last three or four years. It did take me some time to work up to being comfortable sharing that. Uh, but I was diagnosed with type one bipolar disorder in 2005. Uh, and that uh, is something that I'm not as guarded about as I used to be. In fact, I'm incredibly open about it now. And I high enc highly encourage any of you out there, if you're struggling with mental health, talk about it. Uh, talk to the people around you. Be as open about it as you feel comfortable. And, and please don't hear that as, you must be open about mental health. It's the best thing ever. No, 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 no. Don't hear that. Uh, because there is risk to being open about your mental health. Uh, sadly, our society is woefully behind the curve when it comes to, to addressing mental health. Uh, there is a ton of misinformation out there, and there are just, frankly, a ton of people that don't want to be informed. Uh, people who just don't want to learn and actually understand what mental health is and how their actions affect it. And that's honestly kind of sad, but it is what it is. Uh, Fortunately, we do have high-tier athletes who are getting involved in the conversation now. Uh, you've got people giving up millions of dollars and chances to compete for majors and big titles. They're, they're stepping aside because of their mental health. They're recognizing that, hey, I can't put myself through this anymore. Um, and they're being vocal about it. They're talking about it. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, and... I kind of want to join the conversation a little bit. Uh, it's not going to be the primary focus of the podcast, not by any stretch, but I am going to talk about it quite a bit. Uh, and um, I think uh, I, I think that will help our community grow. And I think it will help give you some insight into how I approach things. Uh, because all these things that I'm going to talk about, like all these metaphysical concepts and all the stuff I'm going to get into today, uh, it, it all it's all tools in the toolbox. There are things that I use to not just improve myself as an athlete or referee or as a competitor. There are things that I use to improve myself in my professional life and my personal life. Uh, and today we're going to focus on the menagerie of metaphysics, which is a term that comes to me through a gentleman by the name of Rich Hamper. Um, he was my very one of my very first friends and coaches back in, oh gosh, 2004, 2005, I think I met Rich. Uh, and Rich taught me about a whole bunch of different animals. <laughs> and, and those animals are all representations of metaphysical concepts. And they give us a very unique and very exciting way to interact with those concepts. It's quantifiable, which is sometimes difficult to do when you're talking about metaphysical concepts. And most of them are rooted in communication. It's about being honest with yourself and honest and clear self-reflection. Um, and to complement the things that Rich taught me, I utilize the DISC assessment. Uh, and this is something that I've been using in my professional life for, I don't know, 10 years. Uh, I learned this when I first started selling health insurance living in Boise. Um, the gentleman that owned the firm introduced me to this. And in 2019, when I went to my first... APA League Operator Convention, the keynote speaker was the guy who created the birds, which is awesome and fantastic. It was a great experience uh, for me. 
and what the birds are are another way to quantify the disk assessment. Uh, if you're if you're not familiar with the disk assessment, um, it's very similar to the Myers-Briggs personality test. Uh, I love the Myers-Briggs, it's great. The premise of that is you take this long drawn out test and at the end of it, it, it processes all your answers and then spits out four letters which describe your personality and communication type. Uh, for those of you that are into that sort of thing, I am ENFJ, which basically means I'm incredibly introvert, extroverted, I'm a dedicated person, I get things done and I have a problem with righteous anger. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, those of you who know me, I like my soapbox. I spend a lot of time on my soapbox. Righteous anger, I got that. Um, but I don't have time every time I meet a new student or meet a new coach or meet a new colleague to have them take the Myers-Briggs test, figure out all the answers, and then get information about their personality. And so what the DISC assessment does is allows you to make a SNAP assessment of someone's personality type and understand how to communicate with them. And DISC stands for... Uh, four different personality types. You have dominant personality types, uh, interactive personality types, you have supportive personalities, and you have conscientious personalities. And what Merrick did is he put a bunch of, is he put a bird to each of these categories. And if you want to read more about that, uh, check out the link in the description at testflightlearning.com. Uh, if you want to take the DISC assessment, learn what bird you are, you can do that there. I got no problem giving these folks a plug and some free advertising. It's a wonderful tool. It's fantastic. Uh, and the birds, I don't know, the birds are fun. Like when we were at LO convention, we all had little stickers on our name tags of to which bird we were. It's a great community building thing. Uh, at the insurance firm, we all knew each other's birds. We all talked about each other's birds. We'd go on a sales call or go on an enrollment and we'd come back in and be like, man, you know, this is how we would, you know, talk about our experience with people like, oh, this guy was a, was a blah, and, you know, and that's how we talked about it. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, it's a really neat thing. And the four birds, you have two introverted birds and you have two extroverted birds. Um, I typically like to start with the extroverted birds. Uh, they're the D and the I in, in DISC anyway. So we're going to start with the dominant personality types, which are eagles. Eagles are your super duper type A people. They are in control. They are big picture people. They are definitely not detail oriented. Uh, they're very much point A to point B. They don't really care about everything that comes in between. They just want to get the task accomplished. Uh, when you see a, an eagle in a leadership role, it typically looks like this. The eagle goes, all right, so look, I got three guys here. We need to get to this goal. All right, we got to accomplish these four things to get to this goal. Well, I'm really good at this thing, so I'm going to take that. Joe, you're really good at this thing. Sue, you are great at this. And Timmy, this is perfect for you. So go do your thing. I'm going to do my thing, and we'll meet back here at the end and put a bow on it. Eagles are very, they're, they're, I don't want to say simple, that's not the correct term, uh, but they're very direct, uh, and they want the concept, they want the result more than anything. So as students, eagles are great. I love eagles as students, they're great. They don't, they don't talk back, they don't argue with you about anything, they really just want the information. When you've got an eagle, you just say, hey, do this, and the eagle does it. Um, Assuming the eagle's bought into you, if the eagle has decided that you're the coach and that you know what you're doing, they're just going to, they're going to listen. They want the information. They're going to get there. If the eagle's decided you have no idea what you're doing, you need to find the eagle another coach because <laughs> it's just not going to work. Uh, and then you have parrots. Me, this is me. I'm a parrot. Um, you can tell because I'm not a huge fan of eagles. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, parrots are the interactive, D-I, interactive. We are the life of the party. 
We are the entertainers. We're typically pretty charismatic. We're social butterflies. And we are masters of chasing the squirrels. We're so good at it. We have very tangential thought patterns. Uh, we get from, I was having a conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about the sky. And that led me to the fact that I'm claustrophobic. And I got there because planes are in the sky. I don't like being on planes because I'm claustrophobic, right? Like that's, that's how parrot thought patterns work. Uh, uh, if you go to the, the example that Merrick uses when he talks, uh, if you have, if you go to the store to buy something and you tell a parrot to go buy a TV, the parrot will go buy a dirt bike. Like, because we're just like, oh man, TVs are cool. And then there'll be something on the TV while we're shopping for the TV that reminds us about something that reminds us about dirt bikes. And then we're like, all of a sudden, why would we buy a TV when we go buy a dirt bike? <laughs> uh, parrots can be somewhat frustrating to work with. Uh, we're very, very good at mansplaining. So sometimes we can be challenging and we're very challenging students. Uh, we just are. We like, we like to chase the squirrels. It's hard to keep us on track. Um, and uh, we're not always the best coaches either. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's difficult for me to stay on a lesson plan. I want to chase the squirrels with my students. Uh, I really don't like having parrots as students because, I mean, one, I want to chase the squirrels with them. I really enjoy chasing the squirrels with them. Can I please chase the squirrels with you? But if we chase squirrels the whole time, we're not going to get anything done. So you can chase a, a parrot down the rabbit hole a little bit. You just have to keep them on track and keep pushing them back towards uh, the concepts that you're trying to teach. Uh, and as a student, uh, just get used to your coach reining you in. It's just going to happen. It's part of the deal. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then you get into the introverted birds. You have doves and we have owls. Uh, doves are your S in the DISC assessment, D-I-S-C. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, doves are the supportive class. Uh, doves are very much your community people. They're very community driven. They're very in touch with the vibe of the room. Uh, I've always thought doves have kind of an aura. They have this very chill, very happy aura. And if you mess with their aura, that doesn't really go well. Uh, if, if you bruise a dove's aura, they're going to be sad. They're going to be mad about it. And if you do something to hurt a dove's friend, well, they got claws too. They got righteous anger. They'll come out. Uh, but uh, look, me personally, I'm parrot. I love doves. I think they're the greatest thing in the world because I can chase the squirrels all I want. And that dove is never going to tell me to shut up. Eagles, on the other hand, will just tell me to shut up and go away. Uh, again, this is why I don't like eagles. I like doves. Doves let me chase the squirrels. And the whole time that dove sits there going, wow, this is really boring. That parrot is mansplaining like a boss. But they're having a lot of fun and I can live with that. I like that. I like when I like when people are happy. It's a very dove thing. Uh, I am also a dove. Most people have two personality traits. Uh, they usually have a dominant bird. They usually have a secondary bird. And everybody has traits from all four birds. Uh, a lot of people in my APA league think I'm an eagle because their experience with me is at tournaments. And when I'm running an APA tournament, I'm an eagle. There is no time for me to parrot. There is no time for me to be a dove. Uh, and there are times where my dove does come out. Doves are typically good at conflict resolution. So I do use my dove when I, when I need to resolve a conflict. Uh, sometimes my eagle comes out when I'm dealing with conflicts, and that's not necessarily good because the eagle's way of dealing with the concept is, okay, we're done. Like, that's it. Done. Moving on. Stop. Whereas the dove can kind of work through the problem a little bit. Eagles are not great at that. Uh, and, and, and it's really uncomfortable for me to be an eagle. I, I don't like doing it. Uh, when, you're, when you're outside of your comfort zone, it's not enjoyable. So at those tournaments, I'm an eagle. And the couple days leading up to the tournament, I'm an owl. 
Um, owls are your C in the DISC assessment, D-I-S-C. Uh, owls are conscientious. They are interested in accuracy and detail. They want things to be right. Uh, the two days before I run a World Cup or a Tri-Cup, I spend 14, 16 hours in my home office paying attention to every single detail I can think of. I plan for every contingency. I do deep skill level reviews for my players. I make sure that when I get to my tournament, I am not going to have a problem. And if I have a problem, I have a contingency. Uh, and that's a very, very owl trait. Uh, when you're working with owls, they want all the information. So when you're teaching an owl, be detail-oriented. It's not like working with an eagle where you're just like, hey, do this. When you're working with an owl, it's, hey, I need you to do this because of this, this, and this, right? A good example uh, on the pool table, two fairly basic techniques in pool are the draw stroke and the follow stroke. And what those mean is when you strike the cue ball into the object ball, does the cue ball follow forward or does the cue ball draw back? Going forward is a lot easier because an object in motion wants to stay in motion. That's easier to control. Good positional play, good high-end positional play in pool is focused on manipulating angles, not manipulating spin. We want the cue ball to go the way it wants to go, and we want to nudge it in that direction so that it travels smoothly and cleanly, and it's a very natural and organic pro uh, progression. Whereas when you draw the cue ball, that's a dramatic change. That cue ball has to hit the object ball, stop, change its momentum, and draw back. I mean, laws of physics, right? An object in motion wants to stay in motion. And so it's more difficult to control a draw stroke. But you need them both. They're both important. They're both foundational shots. But every pool player ever, as soon as you teach them how to draw, and I mean every pool player ever, I have never worked with a student who doesn't do this. And I've been playing pool for a very long time. <laughs> um, all they want to do is draw the cue ball. That's it. That's what they want to do. Why? Because it looks cooler. It's a more advanced skill. There's a misconception in the pool community that if you can draw the cue ball, you're a good pool player. Which, I mean, I mean yeah, you got to draw the cue ball for, uh, to find success in the game. But the, the general technique of drawing the cue ball is really not that hard. It's the decision-making process that is a little more challenging. And each bird is going to approach that differently. If you tell an eagle, hey, you should follow the cue ball more often than you draw it, the eagle's going to go, oh, okay, that's what makes a good pool player. Cool. Parrot, oh boy, oh boy, parrots, that's tricky. But the parrots are like, but mom, I want to draw the cue ball because it looks cooler. It's harder to do. It looks more impressive, right? We want the cool things. We're parrots. We want the cool things. And the dove goes, okay, I'm going to go forward because if I go forward, I'm going to win more often, and that helps my team. And if you need to convince a dove that they should go forward instead of drawing the cue ball as often as they do, all you got to do is say, hey, you know what? You're hurting your team by doing that. And you're hurting the community. So let's push the cue ball forward, right? Doves respond to that. And owls, ooh, owls want to understand why. Why is it better to draw the cue ball? Why is it better to go forward? Well, because an object in motion wants to stay in motion. It's easier to control. You can find more success that way. Now, is it a universal statement? No, there are times where you have to draw the cue ball. That's a thing. Uh, but you have to be able to make those assessments and understand why you're making those assessments. Or if you get a situation where you can both go forward or draw the cue ball, it's almost always better to go forward because it's a more natural stroke, right? And each of the birds is going to come to that conclusion in a very different way. And uh, now that we've gotten through the owls, we've we've finished off the, uh, you know, finished off the disc assessment here. Uh, it, it, I use this all the time. It takes me 30 seconds to a minute to figure out somebody's bird. I can figure it out immediately 
talking to them. And then just by figuring out what bird they are, I mean, think about the conversation we just had about drawing and following the cue ball. If I know the personality type that's in front of me and I understand how I need to communicate with them, I can very quickly teach that. I mean, what, in two or three minutes, I just taught all four birds <laughs> why it's better to, to, why it's usually better to follow the cue ball instead of drawing it. And I made all four of those birds understand that that's not a universal truth. It's situational. And I did it in a different way. Uh, a very, very powerful tool. I think it's fantastic. It builds the community. And birds are really good at hunting worms. And I know that sounds like a weird segue, but the second part of the menagerie of metaphysics are the worms, right? Worms are worry worms. And this comes from Rich Hamper. Uh, this is not my work. Uh, his, uh, there's a link in the description to his website, uh, The Earth Dimension. If you want to read up a little more on the worms and the bears, you're, you're more than welcome to. It's a great read. Uh, highly recommend. Uh, but what worry worms are, are worms like they sow doubt. They bury their way through your head and they make you doubt yourself. And when you start doubting yourself, you start making mistakes. And when you're making mistakes, that leads to anger and frustration. And we call anger and, frust uh, um, anger and frustration in the fencing community, we call that the bear. Uh, and, and I think that's a very apt analogy. Bears are typically angry and frustrated creatures, right? <laughs> but they're cute, so you want to go play with them, right? And that's not usually a good idea. Uh, <laughs> and we as people sometimes, I think we forget, like, look, yeah, the bear's cute, but it's really not fluffy and cuddly. Like, that's really not what bears are, uh, at least for the most part. I guess you can have pet bears. I guess that's a thing. Uh, but uh, most people are not good at converting anger and frustration into anything even resembling being positive. Uh, now, I guess there are some fluffy and cuddly bears out there. There are some people out there who can channel frustration and anger in and put them in a very highly competitive place to where they perform well. I sometimes am one of those people. There's a very specific trigger that I have that will set me into that mode. Uh, one of my absolute biggest pet peeves in the world are people who clap and cheer for people's mistakes. This drives me crazy. Uh, when I'm out at pool league, if I shoot a shot and I make a mistake, uh, and this happened to me one time last year at league. Uh, <laughs> I I was in the middle of a break and run and I was playing and I had it solved. Uh, I had the rack completely solved and I got a little complacent. I got a little lazy and I left myself snookered. Uh, snookered is a pool term for where you leave the cue ball in such a place where it's blocked by other balls and you can't pocket the ones you need to pocket. So I left myself snookered behind one of my opponent's balls. It's like committing an unforced error in tennis. It's not a really good thing. It, it, there are mistakes you, you need to avoid. When you're, uh, when you're doing pattern play and positional play, and the opposing team, oh yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you were gonna get a chance to play, and oh yeah, uh, uh, cheering and celebrating the fact that I snookered myself, and that's amazingly disrespectful. I I don't appreciate that. And we were playing the first game, and um, that that particular issue, that's a hot button trigger for me, and I went off. I I beat that player five nothing in three innings. Uh, with with a couple of break and runs, and I just no, mm -mm. you you don't do that. I don't respect that. Uh, I I don't think that's good for the community. I think it's just generally very very bad. I had another situation where I I finished a break and run and I left myself in a really bad spot. I the eight balls frozen on the top rail, the five balls frozen on the bottom rail, and I froze my cue ball on the bottom rail with the five ball. And those are the only three balls on the on the table. And if you know anything about pool. If you've got a cue ball and a five ball frozen to the bottom rail, and you've got to get your cue ball all the way to a ball that's frozen on the top rail, and these are both almost on the middle diamond, that's a, a, a big shot. 
And the team I was playing against all sat there and go, oh, yeah, yeah, there's no way he can make that. He, oh, yeah, mm-mm, done. That's that's it. He blew it. And, oh, I made that five ball. I made it. Not only did I make that five ball, I put my cue ball in perfect position to pocket that eight, uh, which is an amazingly technical shot, a huge stroke. But that disrespect for, not me, I don't read the disrespect as me, I read that as disrespect to the community and disrespect to the game, and I react accordingly. Uh, But that's one of the very, very rare situations where I can channel anger and frustration to put myself in a highly competitive place. For the most part, when I get angry and frustrated, bad things happen. I don't perform well. And worms are very, very good at provoking the bear. In fact, that's an, that's like their entire reason for existence. Uh, <laughs> and, and worms are different for every people, or different for every person. And I, I've always envisioned the worms. Uh, I, I'm a big giant dork. You're going to hear me talk about dork stuff on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I used to play a game in high school with some friends of mine, or maybe it was early college. I don't remember. It was 20 years ago. And uh, we played a game called Worms Armageddon. And we played it on the... Sony Dreamcast, or no, not Sony, Sega Dreamcast, the Sega Dreamcast, which was uh, their attempt at a third generation system. It was a complete flop, but it has a, a cult following and worms. In the game Worms, you basically play with, with a team of worms, and they're like super sarcastic worms. Like, they are like, they're awesome. Great characterization. They talk a whole lot of smack to not just the other worms, but to you. If you make a mistake as the as the player, the worm will like look at you and laugh at you and make fun of you. It's great. It's fantastic. And it's a battle royale kind of game. The goal is to take your worms and blow up the other worms. And the tools that the worms have to do this are ridiculous. They have bazookas. They have the holy hand grenade of Antioch. They swing around on ninja ropes and drop dynamite on everybody's face. Uh, jackhammer into the grounds and, and plant subdural bombs that blow people up. It's ridiculous. Super fun game. Highly recommend if you've never played it. And every time the worry worms are going crazy in my brain, that's what I feel like is happening. I feel like these worms are just like throwing hand grenades around and walking around with cattle prods, poking each other and, and doing all this stuff. And the, and the whole time they're doing it, they're doing it with the express purpose of pissing off the bear. Uh, they want to get the bear out of the cage. That's what their worms mission is, right? They want the, they want the bear out of the cage. And uh, they do that by either literally poking the bear with a cattle prod and pissing it off so that it breaks out of the cage. Uh, they go find food for it. They make it as angry as they can so it's strong enough to break out of that mental cage that you put it in. And they also look for the key. They look for that one thing. There's like this one, there's like a ninja worm or like a, a Navy SEAL worm or something. And his job is to like get behind enemy lines and find the key to the bear's cage. And when he finds that key, goes over and just unlocks the bear. And it can just be one little thing. It, like there, there are certain things that, that are hair triggers. There, And sometimes it just comes out of nowhere. Like sometimes you don't realize that that worm has been hanging out, but there's just been something going on that's sticking in the back of your head. And then all of a sudden the bear's out of the cage. Ooh, rut row raggy. When a bear comes out of the cage, that's not good. Um, anger and frustration, not good. Uh, and the bear is is similar to birds in that there are different types of bears, but that's a conversation for another episode. Uh, to, to finish out the, the this episode, I want to talk about how you can teach your bird to go hunt the worms. Uh, that's that's definitely a thing. Uh, your bird is, is who you are. I'm a parrot dove. That's who I am. Uh, when I'm being the truest version of a parrot dove... 
and by the, the truest version of that, I mean not just being honest about my strengths, but being honest about my weaknesses and understanding the things that I need to work on and the steps I need to take to make sure that those worry worms don't become a problem for me. And this particular concept applies not just to sports. Uh, I apply this in my real life. You know, as I said earlier, I have bipolar disorder. And, and bipolar disorder is grossly misrepresented in the media and in Hollywood. That's not what it's actually like. And, and bipolar, I mean, sometimes it is. Uh, bipolar disorder uh, presents very differently in every person. It's not the same. Uh, but the generalities are in the mood swings, the ups and downs and the rapid cycling or the mixed moods or, or whatever they are. But you know, basically people with, with bipolar, we have a mental or we have a mood disorder. Um, you shouldn't really think of it as a mental disorder. It's a mood disorder. Uh, and uh, sort of like anxiety and depression are mood disorders, right? Uh, and I use these tools and these techniques to keep myself from getting into hypermanic or hyper uh, or hyperdepressive episodes. Uh, I look for ways to be a good parrot, to be a good dove, and to understand my strengths, my weaknesses, and my worms or triggers. And it's very, very important for me to avoid getting triggered. Uh, if I get triggered, I have some PTS in my background too. Uh, if I get triggered, that can set off a hypermanic or set off a hyperdepressive episode. And I need to keep those in the cage. Those are synonymous with the bear for me. Uh, there are definitely bear components to being hypermanic and hyperdepressive. There's definitely some anger and frustration that goes with that, especially on the manic side. Uh, but for the most part, I, I really do train my birds to go hunt my worms. I don't really have a choice. And I'm still learning. I'm not very good at it yet. There's been a pretty dramatic change in my health situation recently. So I, I'm still learning how to do that. It's an ongoing process. And um, you can do it professionally, too. You know, If you're struggling in the workplace, these are techniques that you can use. Uh, these are definitely great tools for self-reflection. And, and of course, the moral of the story being communicate with yourself and communicate with yourself in, in a positive and an uplifting way. Uh, my, my APA players will tell you all the time, I, I use the phrase, community is built by communication, or communication builds community. And, and that, that is how it works. And it's not just externally, it's internally too. So if you folks have any questions uh, about what I've gotten into today, if you want some clarification, or if you want to do some theory crafting with me, please reach out. My email's in the description, uh, metaverseofsports at gmail.com. I absolutely love theory crafting. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. Um, I very much miss sitting around the campfire with Rich or going out for beers with various people and, and doing all this theory crafting. So please, if you'd like to fill that void in my life, I'd love to have you. Uh, uh, and probably what I'll do is either at the start of every episode or maybe after each episode, I'll take 10 or 15 minutes and answer some questions and engage those if I've got some good material that I can work with. Uh, I'm also going to be doing a second segment on the podcast called Nahum Soapbox. Uh, my longtime gamer handle is Nahum, N-E-H-U-M. Uh, that's been me in the cyber universe for about 25 years as a gamer. And I developed a reputation for being uh, outspoken and not afraid to share my feelings. So I am going to continue to do that on this platform, uh, get into some issues uh, that are at the forefront of sports. Uh, sometime in the near future, I want to talk a little bit about Terry Francona and the Cleveland Guardians uh, it, with his team building philosophy and soapbox a little bit about some mid-market baseball problems. Uh, and uh, later today or tomorrow, I'm going to record an episode about the eight holes uh, and the Maple Hill Disc Golf Course uh, with the MVP open this past weekend, uh, which will lead me into a lesson on avoiding distraction. Uh, so pool players don't be put off by the disc golf lead-in of the, of the soapbox episode. Uh, we are going to come around to something that is very critical to pool players, something that we deal with every day. 
uh, as pool players. Every time we compete, we deal with distraction, and it's an important thing to learn how to deal with. Uh, we'll get a little bit into conscious versus subconscious on that maybe, but uh, next week's episode of the, the main metaverse podcast uh, is going to be about conscious mind versus subconscious mind. Uh, or at least I say next week, I don't know, I'm going to do this at least once a week, but I might do it more than once a week because it's fun. <laughs> but we have two different brains. We have a conscious mind, we have a subconscious mind. They both function very differently. They both do very different things for us and they both have to be trained very differently. And once you learn to differentiate between the two, it'll open up doors for you. It opened up a lot of doors for me. So folks, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, like I said, this is something that is near and dear to my heart and something that I really enjoy. So please hit that like button, hit that subscribe button down at the bottom of your screen. Make sure you don't miss out on the next episode. And please email me that feedback. Uh, and I'm going to close every episode of Metaverse the same way. Uh, unfortunately, suicide has become the leading cause of death, not just in the United States, but in the world. And uh, we should do something about that. So at the end of every show, I'm just going to very quickly remind you, like, look, folks, if you're out there dealing with something, if you're hurting, talk to somebody. Email me. I'll send you a phone number, somebody you can talk to. I have no problem doing that. If you're my friend and have my contact information, talk to me. If you need it, I will talk to you. No judgment, no nothing. Or if you need me to pass you on to somebody else you feel more comfortable with, I'm certainly glad to do that. But nobody should ever fight that battle alone. Do not let your friends fight it alone. And uh, with that, folks, thank you so very much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. Take care. Enjoy yourselves. And uh, don't do anything I wouldn't do twice. <laughs>